The scripture today is from uh, selections from Luke 12 and also 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then he said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. For no one's life or for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouses nor barns, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you, why are you anxious about the rest? O ye of little faith, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in heaven that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Vicki. Good morning. It's good to see so many of you this morning. Thank you for coming and being with us to celebrate on this, our seventh anniversary. We're excited uh, to be able to share the day together. We are continuing a series all this fall uh, through the Gospel of Luke, but we're going to do it a little different. Instead of just kind of working our way chronologically through the book, we're going to take a theme every month uh, that is unique to Luke's Gospel, and we're going to uh, use the whole month and really kind of dive into that theme from different points in the Gospel narrative. You know, the four Gospels, for the most part, all record the same events, but they each uh, come at them from four different sets of eyes. So each of the four Gospels has its own style and its own thematic emphasis because each of the four Gospel writers had their own personal stories and reasons for writing. And Luke is no different. 
And there are certain themes that are unique to Luke's telling of the gospel. One of those themes, as we were looking at for a number of weeks now, was his concern about self-righteousness. And so we took all of September to really uh, look at that theme. Another theme that Luke addresses with great frequency and great urgency is uh, that of money. Uh, and, and I, you know, I already know. I already know how, you know, I can, I can feel in the room how the room goes when you even say that. Years ago, uh, I had somebody tell me that they had a friend that they wanted to, to invite to church. And every time they extended an invitation, the friend politely said, no, uh, because their big hang-up was, as they put it, that preachers were always talking about money and always asking people to give money to the church. And this person was telling me how great it was that he was able to say to them, you know, at our church we don't take an offering. Uh, we actually do once, once a month, and when we do, it's so that we can give all the money that we take away to other people. Uh, so like the mercy offering this morning that we'll take. And I want to say I'm proud of that uh, because I understand the cynicism. There are just too many televangelists and too many building project, uh, you know, fundraising campaigns, um, but this is here in Luke, and we can't ignore it. We have to make sense of it, okay? And I, and I got to tell you, 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 this is, you know, so pray for me this morning because there's a real weight to that. I was telling the early service, I listened to a sermon that Tim Keller preached on a similar passage, and when they got done, as Vicki finished her Bible reading, this is the word of the Lord, he was actually reading the text for that morning, and he, you know, he read this passage from Luke 12 and said, this is the word of the Lord, and then kind of under his breath said, unfortunately. <laughs> you know, and I, and I, I you know, I, what I get to look forward to this morning, it, we, there is just a lack of enthusiasm on the part of the church most of the time to talk about these things. And you can even, you know, so I got some scowls this morning, I'll be honest with you. I didn't get a lot of like, in, you know, so be with me, okay? Because I'm, I got to talk about these things. I don't necessarily want to, but they're here in Luke's gospel. And I think we've probably not loved you well by by not, uh, given who we are as a church, not really spent more time over the last few years uh, talking about, talking about uh, what, Luke, what Luke has to share with us here this morning, okay? Now, before we get into the details of the passage, I want to give you two warnings uh, that, that hopefully will frame what we're going to talk about from Luke 12 and 1 Timothy this morning. And the first is that if you look in your Bible, or if you look, um, you know, if, well, if you look in the Bible, this is called the parable of the rich fool. That's the heading that's given to this part of the scripture. Uh, and what I want to tell you is, is it, I just want to show you how it applies to every single one of us. Because the problem is, with riches a lot of times, is, is you can always find somebody who's got more than you do. And so, it, the, 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 part of the deceitfulness of riches is that um, you would look at somebody else who has more than you and say, well, they're rich, but I'm not. And it's that comparative thing that would, that would cause you to maybe think, well, you know what, boy, you know, and, and with particularly with passages like this, it would be very tempting to think, man, I'm glad so-and-so's here this morning. They really need to listen to this and hear about this stuff, but not me. And I just, want, I just want you to know, if you're here and you own a car, not to mention two or three or four in your household, you're part of the world's top 1% as far as wealth goes. And so I, I just think it would be foolish of us to think this obviously applies to somebody else but doesn't apply to me. But the other thing is, is if you notice in this parable... Jesus is not talking to rich people. He's talking to a man who is not rich, but who wants to be. And that's what occasions the parable. So money, we could say very clearly, is a problem for people who have it, but it's just as big a problem for people who don't have it, but who want it. And so every single one of us in the room, we really need to talk about these things. As much as you, know, much as you don't want to, and as much as maybe I don't want to, it's here. The other thing is, is we have to be careful not to moralize the story. 
we really are going to be have, have to use our imagination. So I'm, I'm really going to, you're probably going to, this is going to be very unsatisfactory in many ways because uh, there's just no way to take, you don't want to break this parable down and turn it into a bunch of lessons and rules. We really want to uh, use this to think more broadly than we would otherwise, to think more deeply, to think more imaginatively about what it is exactly that Jesus is teaching. And really, it stands on, I mean, the, the lesson stands on itself, doesn't it? Jesus is saying, be generous. Be generous, people, because God has been generous to you. Not like this man, who's the model of, of whatever's the opposite of generosity. Okay, so let's come to this passage and look then. And what I think you see here in the three points in the outline that I gave you are just this, that first I think the passage teaches us, it warns us, not to set our hope on riches because it's foolish to do that. Secondly, it also reveals to us the reason why we set our hope on riches, because we live with anxious hearts. And then lastly, it teaches us how we can, how we can avoid the danger of setting our hope on riches, and that is to ultimately see that all things in our life come from the generous Father. So you have the rich fool, and then you have anxious hearts, and then you also have uh, the generous Father. Those are our three points. And we'll just walk through the, the passage uh, with those things in mind. Okay, first, let's start. That first, we see Jesus' parable here is a warning not to set your hope on riches because that is foolish. So like many of the parables in Luke, Jesus doesn't just pull the material out of thin air. It's a response to a situation that, that he found himself in. So in this case, verses 13 and 14, it's a dispute over an inheritance between two brothers. And one of the brothers comes to him and he says... Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Okay, this was not unusual. This is what part of what a rabbi would do is they would, just, they would you know, solve civil and, and family disputes like this and, and, and divide these things between people. But Jesus perceives that something's very wrong in this man's heart, and it prompts this word instruction. That's really the summary of the teaching of the whole passage in verse 15. So if you look there, this is, this is the summary. Jesus says, take heed. This is what he's noticed in this man. Take heed, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So let's just start with that statement for a minute. And I want to say this. There's a difference between having money and loving money. There's a difference between having money and trusting in money and putting your hope in money and making an idol out of it. And that needs to be said. Jesus says, take care. You're in danger. In other words, being rich, like every single one of us in the room are, Puts you in spiritual danger, not because money and material possessions themselves are evil. No, God is generous. He's good. He's a generous father, and he loves 1 Timothy 6.17 to richly provide us uh, with everything to enjoy. I mean, that's what God wants for us. He wants for us to have things that we can enjoy and give him thanks for. The problem is not money. The problem is not material possession. The problem, problem is how our hearts sinfully respond to having these things. And we need to get this right. So let me put it in another way. According to Jesus, the problem is not having an abundance of possessions. It's not the problem. The problem is thinking that life consists of having an abundance of possessions. In other words, it's hard to have wealth and not begin to look to it for life, for it to become your source of security and safety and to look to money to give you the things you want and need in life. It's hard to be rich and not begin to set your hope on riches and trust in them to provide for you instead of trusting in God who richly provides Okay, so I want, to, I want to make sure to say that. But there's another kind of summary thing at the beginning here I want to say, and that is that if having money is the problem, or if not having it but wanting it is the problem, if that's not, I mean, excuse me, if that's not the problem, let me say this again. If having money is not the problem, 
but wrongfully and sinfully trusting in it. If that's the problem, then part of God's work in our lives to sanctify us by the power of the Holy Spirit, part of our being redeemed, and what we want to hope for in one another is that he is able to produce in us a supernatural ability to be rightly related to our money and to use it rightly, not to serve money as a master, but to use it to serve God and others. And I want to keep this in front of us as a real possibility too as we talk for this month about these things, that it is possible to have money and not give your heart to it, to not trust in it, to not turn it into an idol and a life source. And the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians 4 that he learned how to do this. He says, I know how to be brought low. And that's pretty amazing to me when I hear him say that, but it's even more amazing to me when he goes on to say, I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He goes on, I can, I can do all things through Christ in that famous verse. Paul says, I know how to abound. I know how to be, have plenty and my heart not be puffed up. I know how to be rich and not trust in my riches. So there is, according to the Bible, a sanctified, redeemed, godly approach to having wealth. Now, this parable teaches us what this sanctified, redeemed, Godly approach to having wealth is not. By illustrating what a life of covetousness and greed and looking to money for happiness and security looks like, it looks like a man who was already very successful and had all that he needed and then he experienced the blessing of God and there was a bumper crop and all of a sudden he had more than he was able to manage and instead of moving in generosity and giving away that abundance, the things beyond all that he needed, he began to build bigger and better barns and store up and have more and more and more. And this is what Jesus is warning against, is this type of thing. Now, I'm, I, I, here I'm really tempted to take the story and explain it to you and apply it for you and to say, you know, this obviously means that you do this and this and this and this and this. And you don't do this and this and this and this and this. And know that about your heart, that we like to take Jesus' stories and turn them into a rule so that we can follow the rule and know we're doing it the right way. But there's a reason that Jesus gives a story here and not a rule. Because a rule doesn't require any imagination. Uh, it, you either do it or you don't. But, it, you know, it's too easy. A story like this is open-ended. It forces you to think long and hard and deep. There's a breadth to application that you really have to wrestle with. It works on your heart in a completely different way, whispering in your life, am I like this man? You know, am I like this man here? Am I like this man here? Now, having said that, let me highlight a number of fatal mistakes that he makes so that they can shape the way that we go about thinking about the story after I'm done talking this morning, okay? So there's a couple of things that, that are very obvious that he, that he really does wrong here. And the first mistake is that he fails to see his bumper crop as a gift from God. Look at verse 17. Did you notice that he refers to the harvest? Which, which, you know, to the harvest, he says, my crops there, verse 17. As if his own sweat and labor provided the increase. He's experienced success, which in truth, he, he has had very little to do with. And yet, in the midst of that experiencing of that success, he's become like the great king Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, who was walking on the rooftop of his palace the one that God had blessed greatly, and yet he's there on the rooftop of his palace, and he looks out at his kingdom, and here are his words. He says, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? Look at what I've done. When in truth, he'd done very little. 
And so he, this man, fails to see his bumper crop as a gift from God and, and a part of God's grace, and he begins to take credit for it. My crops, he says. There's a second mistake he makes, and the second mistake he makes is that he forsakes community. Kenneth Bailey, who is a commentator and an expert in both ancient and contemporary Middle Eastern cultures, he makes this point, and it's, it, was really, really, um, it was really powerful for me. He notes that even today, even today, what would happen in a, in, a, in a community like this is the leading men of the community, the village, would sit at the gate of the village, and they would spend day after day talking with one another. And so the slightest transaction or business deal or whatever the case might be would be brought to this kind of conglomeration of the village men to be discussed and hashed out and, 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 and debated back and forth. And so Bailey says that men, like the man in this parable, made decisions in community, particularly when something like this, you know, something like what happened to this man happens. They, they decide what to do after hours of discussion and debate and deliberation with their friends, but not this man. And, and Bailey says this is really startling. If you look at verse 17, we're told that, that in the midst of this, he thought to himself, this is what I'm going to do. I'll do this, I'll do this. In other words, he's, he's, not, he's not going to his friends and saying, do you think this is a good idea? What about this? Do you, what, do you think, what do you think I ought to do with this? He's, he's just, he forsakes community and he's making these decisions all by himself. So Bailey says this, he had no one else with whom he could talk. He trusts no one and has no friends or cronies with whom he can exchange ideas. When he needs a dialogue, he can only talk to himself. Now listen to this phrase. Bailey says, this is the prison that wealth can build. This man has the money to buy a vacuum and then live in it. And so he forsakes community. And then what happens is, is because he fails to see his bumper crop as a gift from God, and because he turns his back on community and begins to act and make decisions in isolation from other people, he becomes completely turned in on himself. Notice how many times the words, I, my, show up in his monologue. I mean, it's startling in verses 16 through 19. What shall I do, he says, for I have nowhere to store my crops. You know, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul. I mean, the, the, Jesus is crafting this story to prove a point here. He's showing how completely self-obsessed this man has become. My crops and my barns and my grain eventually become my soul. My life belongs to me. No one else can tell me what to do with my stuff. I don't belong to anybody else. I belong to me. And it's this, uh, it's to this that God comes and responds, you fool. And in the Bible, a fool is a person who's out of touch with reality. And this man is for sure. He lives as if his crops, his barn, his grain, his goods, even his soul all belong to him. But the truth is that every breath is on loan from God. And God comes in the story to this man to call in the debt. Verse 20, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you've prepared, whose will they be? You see, it's foolish to think about your money. And to be thoughtless about your soul as if money matters more. It's foolish to live as if this life, with only this life in view, because it is out of touch with reality. There is something beyond this life. And how you live here and now determines how you will live there. Generosity and sacrifice here and now means treasure there that will never fail, that no thief can steal, that no moth can destroy. Earthly treasures fade. 
they are here and then gone. Our pleasure with them, if we're, if we're honest for the slightest second, our pleasure in all of the earthly treasures that we give our whole lives to waxes and wanes, and at best we get to experience them for a few years or maybe a couple of decades in retirement. But what is that compared to eternity? See, this is what the passage is pressing on us. What is, what, you know, what, what a life... What, you know, what does a wasted life look like in light of all that God is going to do for us in eternity? Leo Tolstoy, who is a famous Russian novelist, he wrote a short story that was really powerful uh, entitled, How Much Land Does a Man Need? It's a story of a man named Pahom who loved land more than anything else in the world and he trusted in it for his salvation. So at the beginning of the story, he's quoted as saying, if I had plenty of land, I shouldn't fear the devil himself. If I had plenty of land then I would always have everything that I need and I wouldn't have to worry about anything in my life. Well, the devil overhears him and arranges a a huge land-buying opportunity. Pahom meets the Bashirs, a simple people with enormous tracts of land, and he's delighted when he discovers their terms. For a flat rate of 1,000 rubles, Pahom may keep as much land as he can circle on foot in a single day. Okay? Sunrise to sunset. There's one catch. If he does not get back to the starting point by sunset, he loses the land and his deposit, the entire thousand rubles. So he has to, you know, go out and walk in a square, and everything that he can outline is his uh, as much as he can as much as he can get in a day. So he sets off on his day long loop, and he begins to make mark his progress with a spade as he goes. And but each time, you know, he starts to think, well, you know, I've been at this for a few hours, and it's getting kind of late. Uh, and he thinks he probably should start cutting, you know, closing the loop and start heading back towards the way he came to make sure he gets back. Every time he thinks, you know, I'm, I'm going to turn here and, go, and start going back, then he sees another a, a, a rippling stream or a, a grassy plain or a noble stand of trees. And he thinks, oh, that's the best thing yet. I've got to have that. Oh, just a little bit more. If I could just go right, you know, if I could just go a little further down, then I can make it. And so the loop keeps extending, and Pahom is so drunk with his ambition that he doesn't realize that he's a long way from his starting place, and he soon realizes the sun is beginning to set. And so in a panic, he begins to dash for the finish line, and it's the longest and the fastest he's ever had to sprint, but it's for the love of his life, and so he gives every ounce of his energy to it, and he makes it. In the nick of time, he reaches home base just as the sun disappears below the horizon in the west. And the Bashirs all cheer and congratulate Pahom on his splendid achievement. But there's one problem. He can't hear them because he's dropped dead of a heart attack. And Tolstoy entitled the story, How Much Land Does a Man Need? And the Indian answers the question. His servant, well, here, here are Tolstoy's words. His servant picked up the spade that he had been marking off what would belong to him with, and he dug a grave long enough for Pahom to live in, and he buried him in it. And here are his words, six feet from head to his heels, that's all he needed. It's a powerful story. And Jesus would say, take care, be on your guard. Be really careful. Don't kill yourself always reaching for just a little bit more. It's foolish. But you see, Jesus' parable and teaching warn us not to set our hopes on money and material possessions because it's foolish. 
But we're also given some insight here as to why we do this. Why bigger barns? Why bigger barns always seems like such a good strategy. Why it seems so wise when in fact it's foolish. And here I'm grateful for how Luke has organized his material. Because he's put this passage, this parable here, just in front of the famous passage about anxiety. That means so, many, uh, so much to so many of us. In Luke's gospel, it's always struck me that the two go together. The actions of the man in the parable here, in other words can be explained by the teaching beginning in verse 22 on anxiety. This rich fool has an anxious heart, and that's why he does what he does. See, the, prob- See, the, problem, is not, the problem is not bigger barns, as if, as if bigger barns is, is never a good idea. The problem is, if you have an anxious heart and your solution is bigger barns, then that's just foolish. That's the, the problem is your anxious heart. And this man has an anxious heart, and that's why he does what he does. What's his goal? Look at verse 19. It's the goal of every single one of us in this room to figure out some way. It's what Dave Ramsey gets paid millions of dollars a year to teach us all how to do, right? To, to, not to knock on Dave. I love Dave Ramsey. But, but it's the goal that we can say, I, I will get to a place where I will finally be able to say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And Jesus says, you know, that's not right. He's anxious He can't settle in until that day comes. He's worried about the future. His bigger barns are a strategy for dealing with his anxiety. So his whole life hope is that he'll finally get to the place where he'll have no more reason to be anxious any longer. If he could just have this much, then he'd be completely safe. He'd have have nothing to worry about. He could finally sit down, relax, and start enjoying life. By connecting these two teachings, Luke is trying to, to point out to us the real problem the heart problem that gets us into trouble with money, and it's that we, too, like this man, have anxious hearts. Our rich fool believes, and this is his foolishness, that wealth and anxiety have an inverse correlation. In other words, he believes that as his anxiety increase, or excuse me, as his wealth increases, his anxiety will decrease. But we're left to is that true? In your experience, is that true? Listen, I, I'm, I, by all accounts, I'm not wealthy. I don't know if I'll ever be able to retire. I hope I will one day. But, I, but this passage, there's implications for that even here too. But I'll tell you, I have more money in the bank at the moment than I've ever had before in my life. And I've and I got to be honest, I don't feel any less anxious. Now I look, is anybody else out there? Can you amen that? Right? Okay, the first service looked at me like, oh, poor you. I'm so sorry that you're, you know... And my experience with friends who have real wealth is that, I've, I've watched this in their life, is that often it's created the opposite effect, that their financial increases haven't done anything to decrease their anxiety. The irony is, is it's just increased their anxiety. So in truth, I think there's a direct correlation between, between money and stress, not an inverse correlation. More money doesn't mean less stress, it often means more stress. And I think this is the great, the great lie, the great lie of American consumerism, that living in the kingdom of heaven means that we have to confront and we have to forsake and we have to, that's what repentance means, to turn away from. The great lie of consumer culture in America is that the solution to whatever problem you have is always more. This house, this amount in my bank account, this much in retirement then I'd be okay. Then I wouldn't have any reason to be afraid or worried. Then I could just relax. Then I wouldn't be so anxious. We keep saying this to ourselves. But, but the truth is, it never works. And so you see, it's not money that we love. 
It's the independence and the control that it promises. We want to be in charge of our future. We want to be God, and money promises to give us God-like powers. This is why we serve it. This is why we love it. That's why we crave more and more of it. Bigger and bigger barns always seems like a good idea because of the power and the control that it promises us. It can get you out of almost any trouble you find yourself in, really. It, it can keep you safe from anything that might hurt you. Money comes and it whispers in your ear, don't be afraid, I'll never leave you or forsake you. With money, we don't have to bow the knee to God. We don't have to live by faith. We can dismiss him. We can take his place. We can engineer our own destiny. And that's what we've always wanted. Our life can be in our own hands. This is the sinful desire of our hearts. And so Proverbs 10.15 says that a rich man's wealth is his fortified city. Okay, but I got a question. Why are we still so afraid? Why are we still so afraid? Most of us, we have, or at least on the pathway to having all that we'll need, we have a secure future for, in, in most respects. Why are we still so afraid? And I think the answer the Bible will give to that question is it's because we're alienated from God. And that's our real problem. In our sin, we don't want Him. The problem is we need Him. We can't live with Him. But the problem is we can't live without Him either. And that's the reason for the emotional crisis. The emotional crisis comes from what... What, what clearly these, passage, these, these passages teach, that we have in our sin entrusted our hearts to uh, riches uh, and put our hope in them, but it's an uncertain hope. It's an uncertain hope, and we know that deep down, no matter how much we have, no matter how flush the bank account is, something in us tells us it's an uncertain hope. And, and, and so, you know, we've turned away, and we're, so, we're 100% committed to finding a life and a happiness apart from God, we're absolutely committed to this, but it doesn't exist. And here's how you know. I mean, here is where you know the truth of what Jesus is teaching here, is that if you're rich, and that's all of us in the room, okay? If you're rich and you're still anxious, then it's your heart testifying to this. If you have all that you could ever need, or if you're on the pathway to one day having all that you ever will need, and you're still afraid, don't you understand? That's your heart telling you that money can't save Anxiety is your heart yelling at you that you're going about life all of wrong. It's your heart protesting and bearing witness to the truth. More and more and more and more and more can't save. Only God saves. There's only one certain hope. And it's not riches. It's the God who richly provides everything for us to enjoy. You see, we're not anxious until we take our life into our own hands. We're anxious because we've tried to take our lives into our own hands and it doesn't work. And so the solution that this passage very clearly teaches us, the solution to our anxiety is never more money, more control, more power. The solution is always faith. Look at verse 28. Oh, you of little faith, Jesus says. See, that's the problem. Oh, you of little faith. And faith here means that you trust and you rely upon God for everything, that you willfully, joyfully take your hands off your life and your money and you put it in his hands that you stop trying to play God, you set your hopes, your confidence, not on riches, but on the God who richly provides us everything to enjoy. But in order to do that, you have to be reconciled to him. You have to be completely confident that what Timothy says is true, that he provides everything, that it all comes from him, and that he gives it to you for you to enjoy, that he's generous and he desires your happiness. You have to be, excuse me, completely confident that when he says sell your possessions and give them away, because that's what a life 
free from anxiety looks like. Don't miss that. I mean, that's, that's just by, I, I, you know, I can't sidestep that. If you want to know, you know, a life free of anxiety looks like a life of selling your possessions and giving them away. When God says that, he's not a killjoy. He's not trying to take all the fun out of your life. He's trying to give you real joy. He's trying to lead you to what Timothy said is that which is truly life. His commands are not a threat. They are the charter of our freedom. And that's faith. Faith is believing that. That when he's doing good to you, you know, he's always doing good to you, even in the times when it feels like he's killing you. And so what he comes to us to say in this passage is, give away, share, be generous, seek the kingdom, do good with your money in your life. And I'll be honest, that feels like death, doesn't it? Anybody else besides me? I don't like any of that stuff. You know, can we, I want to, I want to like pull Thomas Jefferson and like rip that part out of the Bible and paste something back together that I like a little bit more than that. feels like death, but those are the moral imperatives in the passages of Scripture that we read. And the opposite, you know, it's very clear. Store up, lay up for yourself. And so the passage says we have a choice. To repent and enter the kingdom of heaven means that we enter into a whole new lifestyle where the way to win is to lose, and the way to find your life is you have to give it away. And the way to true joy is to enter into sadness, and the way to real power is to become a servant. Do you hear how upside down all this is? And the way to real riches, is to empty your barns. Jesus would say, don't let your life take the shape of this rich man's life. It's foolish to live that way. It's out of touch with reality. Because at the very center of reality, the very center of the universe is God who exists in Trinity. And the doctrine of the Trinity means that it is the very nature of God to be moving in out in overflowing love and generosity each of the persons of the Trinity towards the other and then towards the creation and those that he loves and calls his own. And that's the significance that we're given here of the title Father when Jesus says, Fear not, oh you of little faith, don't, you, don't be afraid, don't you know it is the Father, the Father's, the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God is not just God, he's a generous Father who is constantly overflowing in love and generosity towards us. What reason do we have to be afraid? And if there's any doubt, if you need consolation, if you need an assurance of that, go to that passage in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, where we're told what the heart of God for us is. Though in all of his riches, though he was rich, he did not hold on to those riches, but in Jesus Christ, God himself took all of his riches and became poor so that in his poverty he could give it all to us so that we could be spiritually rich. God has impoverished himself to make you spiritually rich. That's the gospel. That's what he's done in the gospel of Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus won through losing. He gave his life and lost it so that others might have life. This is, this is the gospel. And this is how Christianity works. You come to God and you say, I have nothing, I'm weak, I'm poor, I'm broke, I'm empty. And God says, oh, now we can work together. I will be your treasure. And then he sends us out, though, see? And the way that he's loved us, the way that he's moved towards us in Christ Jesus, the implication of the text, and I think of all the Bible, is that he sends us out uh, to do the same in love towards others. And that's, if you look, if you look really, really closely um, at verse 21 in chapter 12 of Luke 12, he says, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And so what I put there in your outline is, is 
then what we, what we have to wrestle with here at the end as we try to draw some applications to this is what does it mean to be rich towards God? Because that's ultimately the imperative. That's ultimately the command of the text is that we be a people not like this rich man, but be a people who are rich towards God. And here's what it means. It's a difficult phrase. Uh, but, but I had a couple of commentators help me out with this. It means something like to be rich towards God means you move toward him as your riches. That you make him your treasure so that more of him becomes more desirable to you than, than more of any earthly treasure. Okay, let me say that again. It means to move toward him as your treasure, to make him, to make him your riches, so that more of him, living and having more of him, becomes more desirable to you than having more of any earthly treasure. And then you use all of your earthly treasures in a way that puts your love and your delight in him on display for everybody to see. That's still hard, isn't it? What do we do? what do we do? Remember what Jesus is saying to us. Keep on your guard. Be watchful over your life. Pay attention. Be careful. There's, there's a lot at stake here. And so just to finish, I want to just offer four suggestions, four practical steps for what it might look like for us to, to keep our guard up, that we might not be laying up for ourselves treasures that will not go with us into eternal life, but rather that we would be a people whose aim in life is to be rich towards God. Four practical suggestions. Let me just run through these very, very quickly. And the first is you have to ask hard questions. You've got to ask really, really hard questions. I, I warn about moralizing the teaching, and moralizing would turn 1221 into an either-or thing. So either you're storing up treasures or, or you're rich towards God, but, but you can't be both at the same time, and that's not right. I want you to be careful. Jesus is not saying don't be saving and investing and planning. Okay, the book of Proverbs says that if you don't save and invest and plan, you're a fool. Rather, Jesus means that in your saving and your investing and your planning, you've got to be motivated by the right thing. You're motivated by one of two things. Okay, you're, you do it, but, but make sure you're motivated by the right thing. Either, one of two things, either you're being motivated by... by um, by laying up a treasure for yourself so that you can just use it however you want to and it's, it's all for you, or you're motivated by God's glory and God's mission. You save and invest and plan either for selfish reasons or you save and invest and plan to glorify God, to take care of the people that you love, and to love other people and for the sake of God's mission. What's your why? See, that's important. What's your why? Never stop asking yourself, why am I doing this? That's way more important. Then what? Then a lot of times the why is more important than the what. So don't get so focused on the what. Really ask that hard question, why? Dig into your motivations. Why? Why am I doing this? Is it for me? Is it just to make me not feel so anxious? Or is it really to glorify God? What's the chief end of man? To glorify him. So what should every, what should every, every what, what's the why behind every what? His glory. So ask hard questions. Secondly, focus on what's going out and not only on what's coming in. Don't worry about what's coming in. That's God's responsibility. Worry about what, what's going out. Maximize what's going on. That's your responsibility. So I told, I told some people, celebrate your giving as much as you celebrate your gaining. Okay? Ask hard questions. Focus on what's going out instead of what's coming in. Third, be extremely cautious and slow. Be extremely cautious and slow when it comes to more, bigger, better, nicer, and so forth. Don't mean, it doesn't mean that, that, that those things are bad or sinful. Please don't hear me, hear me say that at all. Just dangerous. And if they're dangerous, then we should be wary, not giddy. It may be inevitable at times, 
Praise God for that. You like this man might wake up and there may be an abundance that you didn't plan for. Wouldn't that be a great thing? I pray that for every single one of you. Please pray it for me too, okay? Will you? I mean, that'd be a great thing if you have the right why. And if, and if God, you know, if you're being redeemed and God's giving you the ability to use it rightly. But let's be, let's be careful. Let's be careful. When there's, when there's more like that, it should bother you a little bit. It should tug at your conscience. Bigger, better, nicer, more, more and more and more. These things should tug at your conscience and make you a little uncomfortable. So ask our questions and focus on what's going out and not only what's coming in and be extremely cautious about bigger and better and nicer and more and forth. And finally, give. Give, share, give away. Give so sacrificially that it displays that God is of greater worth than any earthly treasure. Let me say it again. This is the measure of Christian generosity. Give so sacrificially that it displays that God means more to you than any of your earthly treasures. And the reason, the reason you can say that is that he means as much to you as you're willing to give up. Give in such a way that it displays the, that God is of greater worth than any earthly treasure. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, became poor so that through his poverty, he might make us rich. Let's pray. So as we come to the Lord's table now, Father, we do pray that we would see yet again your great love for us in Christ Jesus. We come forsaking all of the ways that we uh, have put our hope in the things that are uncertain in life and that it has caused anxiety that only causes us to go deeper into the cycle of unbelief and sin, and so we ask that you would grant to us the gifts of repentance and faith that in these moments we have at the end of our service here together that you would uh, open our eyes to see your great love and radical generosity towards us in Christ Jesus, his body broken and bloodshed, and may it so overwhelm us and so secure us in your love that we gladly would become uh, like what you call us to in this passage, to be generous, rich in good works, ready to share, not setting our hope upon the uncertainty of riches, but hoping in the God who richly provides, that we would be radically generous people who give in such measure that it displays for all to see your surpassing greatness and great worth to us, your people. We need your help to come and do this in us. And so would you work now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, receive the benediction. It's the promise that as you go, in obedience to his commands, to take your wealth and to use it uh, to bless other people, that all of the riches of his wealth is at your disposal. That's what these words mean. And so receive, receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.